0: And this is my first live broadcast of 2022. I appreciate everybody jumping on with me today. So, uh, so I want to talk about some things that I've been thinking about. Uh, <clears throat> and that is I want to, let's, let's, let's talk about spirituality. Let's talk about Jesus specifically. Uh, <clears throat> and I want to, one of the things that's been Like like, I I went through various stages of deconstruction. So the first thing to deconstruct for me was, and this was way back in the 90s, was all the rapture, um, second coming, Bible prophecy, revelation, this is the end of the world BS that, that gets put out there. And I say it's BS because obviously, uh, you know, Hal Lindsey was wrong in the 70s, Jack Van Impey, you gotta be old to remember some of this stuff, but Hal Lindsey was wrong in the 70s with the late great planet Earth and there's a new world coming. Jack Van Impey was wrong, uh, all those times on his television broadcast, um, let's see. Paul and Jan Crouch, <laughs> if you watched any TBN, they were wrong. Everybody's wrong about it. And so, uh, you know, I deconstructed from that. In the 90s, by the early 2000s, I've become what's known as preterist, which means that you look at the words of Jesus in Matthew and the book of Revelation and other things that Paul said, you look at it as happening, having happened in the past rather than something that's being looked at in the future. So that was kind of the first thing. The next thing that kind of went was the penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that uh, God had to give a human sacrifice to himself in order to satisfy his angry self. And be at peace with us, and uh, so you know I shifted away from that. Um, and then uh, when I did that, then then kind of the next thing to go was uh, the inerrancy of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible. And we would say there's a difference between inspired scripture, uh, scripture being inspired by God, and the inerrant. Word of God. And inerrant means that it's absolutely without errors. It's true in every statement of science and reality and history, and there's no contradictions. And even just a careful observer of the Bible uh, can find that difficult uh, to swallow. So you believe, well, it's inspired. It does have errors. Not every word or every doctrine is true. There's a cultural context to it. Uh, so we go back and start looking at it in its cultural context, but still inspired. It still has the breath of God on it and whatever. And when I was kind of in that phase, I went through this sort of Christocentric idea that, you know, for a couple of years, just fixated on Jesus. And you'll hear a lot of uh, what I would call progressive Christians talking about this. Brian Zond is a voice that's out there. Uh, Keith Giles, uh, Matthew DiStefano, a couple of people that um, – I've engaged with a little bit. um, They weren't too happy about the way I engaged them. Um, But, you know, their ideal is, okay, we're going to let go of the Bible. We're going to let go of the Word of God as being inerrant. Or um, uh, I think Matthew DiStefano even told me in a exchange that he doesn't get his theology from the Bible at all. But they're very Christocentric, and so I went through that, too. So God couldn't reveal himself in a, in a book, so he had to come as a human being. So if you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. He's the word manifested in the flesh. Now, here's the problem with that, and it's it's a really simple problem. Uh it, it, You know, it's kind of hilarious. I kind of laugh at myself now when I think about, you know, being in that stage of deconstruction because, okay, let's let's just – presuppose that that's true. That Jesus is God manifested in the flesh. You know what God's like? You have to look at Jesus. How do we do that? See, we'll say, well, God isn't revealed in a book. God is revealed in a person. But then we're told about the person in the book. So it's the book, the New Testament, that reveals the person, right? Because that's all we've got. That's all we've got to go on. Um, Now, people say, well, I've got my personal experience. I'm going to come back to that. But Then be honest about it and say, well, I know what God is like because of my personal experience looking at Christ, not because he's manifest in the flesh, because Jesus isn't sitting across from you talking to you. Uh, you're not following him around in his meetings. You're not, you're not privy to the conversations that he may have, may or may not have had with his disciples about the secret teachings where he's opening up the kingdom of god to them unless you're doing it like the apostle paul did by revelation right by visitation but then be honest and talk about your experience tell people to follow like paul did if you want to know what god's like follow my gospel but see we can't say that we can't say that because then we would look like a cult in this day and age. But that's what Paul did. Paul didn't say, look at Jesus. Paul said, follow my gospel. Follow my revelation. In fact, if anybody else, read the book of Galatians. If anybody else preaches anything other than what I preach, let him be accursed. If an angel from heaven even comes down and preaches something other than what I preached, let him be accursed. So so just tell people, you know, I'm following my own experience, uh, and that's how I know what God is like. And maybe you encourage them to have their own experiences. That's healthy. But to tell them to look at Jesus, you got to tell them how to look at Jesus. How do you do that? See, the, the church is great on content, the what, but the church is consistently terrible on the how. How do I do that? Uh, you tell me what to do. Come down to the altar, just give this burden to Jesus. Okay, that's the what, but how do I do the how? <laughs> uh, Just forgive that person that abused you. Just just look at them and realize, you know, we see this in spiritual communities, too, this just easy sort of believism, and it comes from people, a lot of people that never really went through trauma in their life. A lot of them come from privilege. A lot of them never really experienced severe trauma. Now, everybody's had trauma in their life, and, and I'm not trying to judge anybody's pain, but I'm saying a lot of people have never suffered severe victimization, like uh, home invasion, rape, repeated incest, uh, things like that. Uh, your son or daughter was murdered by someone or a family member close to you was murdered by someone. I mean, I'm talking about things that are really difficult and painful to get over. I'm not just talking about being in a screwed up relationship or a girlfriend broke your heart or, um, uh, you know, you, you had a difficult upbringing in poverty. I'm, I'm talking about real what what would be clinically diagnosable as trauma and in order for it to be clinically diagnosed as trauma there has to be it has to be almost a life or death or life and limb issue so your bad relationship doesn't count uh at least clinically <laughs> but they tell you okay just forgive well how do i just forgive how do i just forgive how do i work through that emotionally so let's come back to this they tell us look at jesus to know what God is, well, how do I look at Jesus? Well, the only way I can do that is to look at the book. So don't tell me you're not following a book because you're being you're being dishonest. You're being intellectually dishonest. I think, honestly, they're probably like me. They're deconstructing, uh, and, they're, and and there's grief that goes with that. When you're losing your, your childhood faith or your, your adulthood faith or something that you've clung to, something that's had real meaning and significance to you, you're going to go through a grieving process. And one of the stages of the grieving process is negotiation. I don't have to lose this. I don't have to let go of this. Um, I can still be a Christian without all without. I don't have to deal with all the problems in the scriptures because I'm just looking at Jesus to know what God's like. And and that helps me out. Well, without writings, without a book, you don't know what Jesus looks like. Unless, like I said, you're going off your own experiences. Right. So now. Let's come back to the writings now the truth is you wouldn't know Jesus like if, if an entity appeared to you and said, hey you know this if in during your meditation time this light being this being of unconditional love appeared to you you probably wouldn't know to call him Jesus if that wasn't historically uh, passed down and deeply 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 embedded in the collective unconscious at least of the Western world if not the entire world I think probably the entire world <clears throat> so then you gotta look at the book. So what do we know about Jesus? Now I know some of my friends and I love you, uh, and I'm happy to, to you know, uh, <clears throat> acknowledge and respect your study and what you believe, but I have a lot of friends that, you know, don't believe Jesus existed as a historical person and their belief is that, uh, the New Testament somehow was written by, uh, People who were encoding messages or ripping off, the Bible was ripping off, um, the Egyptians, the, the uh, Bible was ripping off, uh all these other religions, Babylonian religion, whatever, and telling the story of a dying and rising God, but refashioning it into the person of Christ. And I've read scholars, I've read some scholarship that uh supports that view, and I find it really, 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 really what I've read. I find to be really thin. Um, Almost, it takes almost as big a leap of faith for me to believe that as it does for me to believe the stuff that I believed when I was a Christian. That's just the stuff I've read and I've been exposed to. And I certainly have been exposed to everything and I have an open mind. So there are things that can change my mind because I don't think it really matters um, whether Jesus existed as a historical person or not. But the truth of the matter is, the first person to write or talk about Jesus, as far as we know, as far as we have evidence, written evidence of, and scholars unanimously agree on this, unless, unless they're stuck in the conservative echo chamber with a confirmation bias. And you'll see this, if you, if you look honestly and objectively at, uh, the scholarship, you'll see that people Interject their confirmation bias. People that have left Christianity, really been wounded by it. As a general rule, they're the ones I know who are going all the way out and saying Jesus didn't exist as a historical person. They're the ones that are leaning towards the scholars that are saying that the death, you know, the dying God theme is being, uh, recapitulated in Jesus. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but to me, it seems like that's just a confirmation bias. By the same token, the people I know who are sticking with the tradition of Eusebius, and I don't mean to talk over your head, throwing out names you don't know, but they stick with the Catholic tradition. Let's just say it that way. They stick with the Catholic tradition about where the gospels came from and um, the reliability of the scriptures, the historicity of Jesus. They tend to have their own confirmation bias as well, and I certainly have my own confirmation biases. And um, and my confirmation biases come out of my own experiences for sure, just like everybody else's does. That's kind of stupid for me to say that, but I'll, I'll put some more to that in a minute. But but Paul, most people don't know this, but the the letters of Paul are the first things to be written that are in our Bibles at least about Jesus. And Paul is writing not from having walked with Jesus or known Jesus in person, having seen the word become flesh. As I said earlier, Galatians brings this out. He, he meets the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, the ascended Christ, the way Luke tells the story in Acts, on the road to Damascus. And then he says in Galatians that he was in the wilderness for something like 14 years of Arabia and that he was taught by in, in really vision form, in Gnostic form, uh, April, uh, no, 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 no. Elaine Pagels, I think, has written a book where she makes the case that Paul was really a Gnostic Christian. I, I think there could be something to that. Because he's learning by Gnosis. He's, he didn't, he wasn't one of the twelve. And so he's writing a gospel. And at the end of the day, his gospel was about, it wasn't so much about, uh, whether Jews should be Torah observant or live under the law. As much as it was, his vision was to unite or expand, I think to expand Judaism uh by bringing in the Gentiles and to unite Jew and Gentiles. So when we're reading scriptures, we're reading Romans, we're reading Galatians, um that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about breaking down a wall, a dividing barrier between Jews and the rest of the nations, which I find really interesting because... We, uh, discover, we believe that Paul was both, um, of Jewish ancestry and, but he was also a Roman citizen. So, and he also studied, it would appear, with some Hellenistic, uh, Jews who were Hellenistic, meaning they were Greek in their thinking. So it would make sense that he would maybe want to see his nation or, or come up with something where there's a unifying of those groups. But he never quotes anything that Jesus said other than, He gave us the communion supper, (laughs) a new ritual that you had to follow. And according to Corinthians, in First Corinthians, according to Paul, if you didn't follow it exactly the way he said to follow it, you'd get sick and die. Then after that, long after that, we have the Gospels. Now, it's pretty much a scholarly consensus, except for people who follow Catholic tradition. And Eusebius, who uh, is a 4th century historian that tells us, that the Gospels were eyewitness accounts. Most scholars today don't believe that. They don't believe that from the external evidence. They don't believe that from the internal evidence. In fact, I would go so far as to say there's a scholarly consensus out there. Now, even among uh, conservative uh, Bible scholars are even beginning to recognize and acknowledge, okay, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not written, by eyewitnesses. Well now you got a real problem. You look at Jesus folk. You, um you know, if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus folk. You got a real problem because if the gospels are not even written by eyewitnesses, and in fact, they're not only are they not written by eyewitnesses, but they're written with, uh, uh, an allegorical bent. Um in other words, Matthew is writing probably in response to Pauline Christianity, where Paul's saying Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, they don't have to keep the dietary laws, they don't have to be Torah observant, um, and Matthew's probably pushing back on that. And so Matthew is inventing this Christ figure, this Jesus figure, as the new Moses. So you can take Exodus in the story, and you can see the parallels Uh going down into Egypt in Matthew. Matthew's younger Jesus uh, the the Holy Family goes down into Egypt. Um, Matthew uh, has the r- record of the Sermon on the Mount, first one to record the Sermon on the Mount, which is akin to Moses going up on the mountain to receive the law. Anyway, there's lots and lots of uh, uh, corollaries there between uh, what Matthew is saying and Moses. But now Luke's Gospel doesn't have uh Jesus, excuse me, or the Holy Family going down into Egypt at all, uh, the Christmas narrative, he's got them going to the temple to have Jesus dedicated and circumcised on the eighth day and then settling in Nazareth. So anyway uh the the point is that it's obvious that there are embellishments mark doesn't say anything about the virgin birth paul never says anything about the virgin birth matthew brings in the virgin birth luke probably borrowing from matthew anyway my point is these guys are writing with specific uh agendas they're not eyewitnesses they're not thinking like modern day people where they want to go back and get the facts like a, a journalist and talk to eyewitnesses and uncover the truth in that way they're pushing their theological bent just like preachers do today just like I do just like I did uh just like everybody does so then how do we so so like how much sense does this make right so so progressive christians will tell you well if you want to know what god's like you look at jesus and yet if that's God's master plan to reveal himself, God's master plan to reveal himself was for him to become a man and walk among us. So that by walking among us, we would know what God is like. He does it in a small location, insignificant location in the Roman empire. And we, and he, This Jesus does not write anything down. No one that walked actually walked with him. There's no existing writings. Now, maybe he did write something down. Maybe there were eyewitness accounts. We don't have them. We don't have them. What we have are Gospels that are written decades later by Jesus following communities, and they're sort of fighting with one another, really Jewish communities that were Messianic, with this Jesus person and each one presenting a different version of what Jesus is like. So that's your word made flesh. That's God revealing himself. That's just, that's just facts guys. That's just reality. Uh, Don't, I mean, if somebody tells you Bible scholars say blah, 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 and they're not being honest about these things, then they haven't even had a first semester course in biblical scholarship that's up to date past the 1950s or the 1960s or whatever. Um, so so then his question arises, was Jesus even a historical person? Was Jesus even a historical figure? Now, again, I've got friends on uh, one side that say, you know, they're just certain Jesus didn't exist and present like, you know, well, Jesus is just a myth. Um, he did, The historical Jesus didn't live or exist uh the biblical writers were just retelling the dying and rising god stories and putting it into Jesus and all that stuff um they're very much going against the scholarly consensus even among liberal historians or scholars i mean historians and scholars whether they're christian or atheist or buddhist the the strong consensus is that jesus was jesus of nazareth was a historical que- uh, person the question is not did he live in history, the question is, uh, what does that mean, and who was he, and all that stuff. Now, I have read scholars, that, and listened to scholars, and listened to YouTube things that say, you know, the historicity for Jesus is very slim, and here's the argument, and where they're coming from. Um, there's no historical documentation outside of the New Testament records themselves, That supports the stories of the New Testament. So for example, there's nothing in the Roman history books that they know about or can find that talks about a census in Luke's gospel where they had to go up and keep the, um, and do the census so that they could go to Bethlehem. So scholars look at that and they say, well, Luke inserted that, uh, as part of the telling because the Messiah had to be from Bethlehem. There's no record in Matthew's account, for example, there's no record of mass um, uh, killing of Jewish babies and Jewish children. There's nothing of that in the history books. Um, a, a third argument would be that um, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, uh, the way he's portrayed in history, the way he's portrayed even in Roman history and by his own people, uh, his character was very vicious and brutal and bloody, especially towards the Jews. So the way he's portrayed, say, in John's Gospel, where he's just caught up in this thing, he doesn't really want to crucify Jesus, he wants to know what the truth is, his wife's been troubled in a dream. They say that's a really inconsistent picture. Uh that, That's a totally different picture of Pilate than what we get from the history books. And then, of course, they would say there's no other mention of Jesus in history books outside of what they would call some questionable references from Josephus and a couple other historians out there. Now, so I, I get the argument. They're saying it's flimsy, but here's the thing. And this, this is what, you know, I was taught in, <laughs> in school. Uh, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. In other words, just because we don't have anything from an extinct culture, a 2,000-year-old culture, a dead culture, uh, just because we don't have writings or just because we don't have records of, say, a census. Like, is that really something that was important enough that Roman is going to, that there's going to be some documentation for that? Or was there some documentation for that on some tablet somewhere that got destroyed and eroded down through time? Uh, I mean, that's not a major world event, a census. I mean, we do one every 10 years. So, hmm, okay. I, I think, uh, you know, we can give the, the, some leeway there. Would Jesus, a carpenter in Nazareth, a would-be Messiah who was crucified, be mentioned by anyone else in history besides the people that were, uh, potentially around him? So, for example, the conservative argument would be that Matthew Mark, Luke, and John were the written collection of the oral teachings that came from the eyewitnesses or the twelve who were with Jesus, that they passed it down orally until, you know, mouth to mouth, mouth to ear, which is very much in line with Jewish tradition. That makes sense. And then someone comes along and writes these, writes these gospels. That's very, very possible. Um, to me, that's, that's a more, solid scholarly argument than, uh oh, it's all just a myth, and somebody made it up, and he never existed in history because we don't have any evidence that he did it outside of the New Testament itself. Um, so, mm. oh, and then this whole dying and rising God thing, like Osiris, people tell you, well, you know, Jesus was like Osiris, or uh to the Egyptians where Jesus was like Dionysus, to the Greeks, but you have to look at those mythologies. Um, Even even, uh, Augustus Caesar believed to be a dying and rising God, but it was believed that his spirit ascended and he became uh, the son of God, uh, seated in the heavens. Uh, In fact, there's a lot of things that are said about Jesus that were also said about Caesar, but... The truth is, like with Osiris and stuff, it's like a giving of his life, dying in the ground, and then being raised up in the wheat and being raised up in the crops. And so when you eat the bread, this, is, this does go back to Egypt. When you eat the bread, you're eating the body of Osiris. So with Dionysus, he's the god of wine. And so, yes, pouring out his life into uh the vineyards. And then his rising is in in the cup. And in the wine. And so, yes, there is some correlation between Osiris and the wheat and the bread and the communion supper. And there is some um, connection with Dionysus and the grapes and the wine. You see what I'm saying? In other words, mythically, symbolically, Osiris dies and rises in the wheat. And that's how we have uh, the wheat harvest. Uh, Dionysus dies and rises in the grapevines, and that's how we have the wine. And then these become symbols, so eating the body of Osiris, eating the body of Christ, drinking the, the blood of Dionysus, if you will, drinking the blood of Christ. So, yeah, there are those connections. But it's not a story of a person who is historically killed, right, and then raised from the dead and has an empty tomb and claims to have defeated and conquered death and offers immortality. In paradise and is coming back to judge, uh, the living and the dead. That's, that's not exactly what they're doing in those myths in other cultures of dying and rising gods. So I can't really, can't really go down that road either. I'm just, what am I talking about? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So at the end of the day, even if Jesus is a historical person, We don't have um, firsthand documentation, right? So God's plan to reveal himself to the world is to come as a Jewish carpenter and leave everybody mystified years down the road when we have the most, we have the biggest population on the planet right now. More people alive on the planet today than ever before by far. In fact, I think I read somewhere there's more people alive on the planet today, uh, possibly, than had lived in all the time prior to this. So this is the time of the harvest, or whatever, if God's going to do that. But um, everybody's scratching their head about, you know, who is this Jesus? What did he look like? Does he look like Matthew's Jesus? Does he look like the Pauline Jesus? Does he look like John's Jesus? How do we know? Some people saying he didn't exist historically. Other people saying he did exist historically, but the things that are recorded are probably not the things that he said. He existed as a a prophet, apocalyptic, an end-of-the-world prophet messianic figure within Judaism. Other people say he was a mystic and that he went and studied in India and he studied with the Egyptians and he learned the Egyptian mysteries and he studied in India and he learned from the 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 Buddhists and the Eastern religions and then he brought that back into Judaism. That's a very real possibility. That that is very a very real possibility. Uh, how do we know, right? But yet we want to have certainty and say this is what God is like. Right? Um, so at the end of the day at the end of the day, we either take the tradition of the church and the tradition of the Catholic Church which really, if you want to be honest about it, for, at least from my opinion, when did the Christian religion begin? It began with Constantine conquering and slaughtering and murdering many of his fellow countrymen in order to consolidate his power, doing it under the sign of a cross, and then bringing together the Council of Nicaea to agree upon Christian doctrines. And that's where we get things like the virgin birth. Like, you got to understand, people think that the Bible was... was written at the council of nicaea that's not true uh the bible was not written at the council of nicaea these these gospels had been around for a long time um, that, but the bible the canon of scripture was not put together until like 50 years i think or 60 years after the council of nicaea what was decided upon at the council of nicaea was what the church believed what christians believed so virgin birth um, jesus dying for our sins Jesus rising again, seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge to quicken the dead. The Holy Spirit, the whole Trinitarian doctrine is uh, hammered out at the Council of Nicaea. Now, because Nicaea came first, they're not going to put anything in the Bible, in the canon of Scripture, that contradicts the Nicene Creed. So, of course, Matthew's going to go in there, because the virgin birth is in the Creed. Of course, Luke is going to go in there, because... Uh of course, John is going to go in there because it seems to reflect this idea of the, the Trinity and the first few verses there. So they're using the Nicene Creed as their canon, if you will, to decide what books go in the Bible and what books don't go in the Bible. Now, admittedly, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the most popular. Uh, so they really it was kind of a popularity contest as well. But here's the other thing that I want to get at, and hopefully I'm not boring you with this. I spent way too much time on this. <laughs> here's the other thing I want to get at with this. Um, you have Gnostic Gospels. You have the infancy gospel of Thomas, you have the Gospel of Thomas, you have the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, you have the Gospel of Judas, you have so you have these Gnostic groups. So here's my question for people that say that Jesus didn't exist. That Jesus was just a myth that someone made up. You see, I find that more intriguing. Because there's no doubt there was a strong Jesus movement. There's no doubt that there's something that happened or someone who lived in the first century that got such a following that you had these competing groups, that you have all these documents and different gospels different versions of who he is. There, There was something that happened, something that was written down, or someone who lived, who caused uh, that somehow? What this, this Jewish sect, this Jewish cult, becomes now the religion of the Roman Empire, and changed the world, and imprinted. The 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 name of Jesus, the the word Christ, the symbol of the son of God, Jesus Christ exists as a reality in if in nowhere else in the collective unconsciousness of humanity. And that's what's important. And that's what we need to deal with. It doesn't matter whether he lived. I mean, to me, it doesn't matter whether he lived, died, was resurrected. We can't prove that. We don't know that. You believe that because it's tradition that's been passed down and someone preached that to you. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, or if he was a myth that someone made up. Now, I, you know, again, if he was a myth that someone made up, why the competing stories? Why the competing stories? Why the Gnostic version of Christ versus the Matthew Jewish version of Christ versus the Johannine divine, almost esoteric version of Christ versus the Jesus of Revelation versus the Jesus of Paul? Like (coughs) something happened in the consciousness of humanity that moved things forward now. for for better and for worse. But but here's my point. Jesus Christ is a symbolic figure in the consciousness of humanity. So much so that you can go to almost any New Age fair, almost any metaphysical fair, almost any holistic fair, almost any New Age event, and you're going to find people who work with Christ's energies. Jesus is one of their guides. Mary Mag- Magdalene is one of their guides. Like nobody has anything negative to say about Christ because Christ for a lot of people has become the symbol of divinity. He has become the symbol of unconditional love. He's become the symbol of expanded and higher consciousness. Uh, and by symbol, what I mean is, is a picture paints a thousand words, right? It's, it's something that is a shared agreed upon definition or, and, and we didn't even agree to it. It's not like we sat down and we had these agreements, but it just comes up out of our collective unconscious. It's just embedded there. So much so that I, I've talked to Buddhists that respect Christ and talk about Christ. I know Hindus, people not in America that converted, people from India that are Hindu that hold Christ in high esteem. Think about Yogananda. If you know anything about Yogananda uh, in the seventies, came over from India and was uh and has written uh commentaries about Jesus and how Jesus was the messenger of higher consciousness to the West and is in the Western mind and in the Western collective unconsciousness or unconscious about these things. So I think that's what's important. I think when these guys like that I mentioned earlier, Keith Giles, Matthew uh Brian Zahn, I I think when they're talking about Christ, looking at Christ, they're not really talking about Jesus of Nazareth from 2,000 years ago, and they admittedly say they're not talking about the Bible. I think what they're talking about is the symbol in the collective unconsciousness that they are interacting with, that they are engaging, that they are dealing with, that then is bringing a sense of unconditional love uh, and all that stuff into their lives. I, I think that's where that's at. And I think it's better if we define it that way. I think it's more helpful. I think it's more truthful and more honest. Now, they get triggered when I say that they're not being honest, but, um, you know... You, uh, Every lie isn't a deliberate lie. Like in my neck of the woods, I get in trouble for saying this. Like, Aaron, you're being inflammatory when you say, let's be honest about something. I I don't know about you guys, but the colloquial was uh, (laughs) in my neck of the woods in the Southwest. When when we say, let's be honest about this, we're, we're not implying that anybody's intentionally lying or deceiving. We're not questioning anybody's character. If I sit down with one of my friends and we're having a discussion and I say, let's just be honest about this. I'm saying, let us just be honest about this. I'm not imputing my character or their character. I'm saying, let's be objective. Let's, let's cut out the bullshit. Let's get outside of our confirmation biases. Let's just be honest. The truth is we don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's fringe scholarship right now. Very, very fringe scholarship right now. It says Jesus didn't exist as the historical person. That could become the norm in 20 years. It could become the norm in twenty years. We don't know. The, the, the fact of the matter is we can't we can't dig him up because even the evangelicals and the Catholics say that he was raised from the dead, right? We, we we can't go back, we can't talk to anybody. Um and most people don't have the time to geek out on biblical scholarship like I do anyway. And so can we just deal with the fact that Christ is a symbol for the divine? Christ is a symbol. Now, here's where I think it's very powerful. Christ is a symbol for divinity manifesting in our humanity. And I think, "Hmm, that's the issue. That's the real Christianity, if you want to call it that. The divinity, the divine life, the divine spark, the higher self, The higher consciousness, whatever, I mean, if you don't like the word divinity, fine. Um, Consciousness, the consciousness of the universe, the universal mind, the mind of the universe, the consciousness that is within energy. In the beginning was the word consciousness, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's what created and held everything together, consciousness and in the word was light energy and so in the beginning was was mind and energy and out of this mind and energy everything that is is and nothing that it can exist without this science is saying that ever since the the discovery of quantum physics and more and more and more and more scientists are beginning to say there is a consciousness there is a divine mind And so somehow we as sentient beings, we as self-conscious beings, we as self-reflecting beings are also plugged into that divine mind. So therefore, as John says, when it's correctly translated in John 1.14, the word has become flesh and dwelt within us dwelt within us, and through mystical engagement, mystical processes, we have beheld his glory. Now, I think in the future, religious language becomes uh, divisive and, um, and not helpful. I think the more we can engage with science on this, I think the more we can use words that are not triggering uh, for people. So for a lot of people, Christ and Jesus is a trigger, and uh, they they hate that for a lot of different reasons. I think it's problematic because people will automatically pick up their Bibles. And unfortunately, when you read your Bible, you're going to find from our perspective, from our 21st century perspective, someone who's really a jerk. <laughs> you, you, really. Um, I mean, we cherry pick this stuff to make him this unconditionally loving person. But that's a, a story for another time. Uh, another teaching. Um, so, but, but for other people it can be helpful because it's so embedded in the subconscious. It's so embedded in the collective unconscious that for people uh, to, it's, this, this Christ idea is so embedded in the collective unconscious of people in the West that they think that they are only two choices in terms of, Theism or atheism, they believe they can either believe in Yahweh and the God of the Bible or they have to be atheists. They don't necessarily have anything in their consciousness that is a pathway to some other way of connecting with divine, with divinity or divine energies. They don't have a pantheon of gods like other people groups do, like say in India, that they can go to or through. And so sometimes when we try so hard, like, like sometimes using Christ and using Christian language and using the scripture, it speaks so easily to what's already embedded in people's subconscious that it can be a very powerful tool to help elevate our consciousness and give people a way to connect with the divine within being expressed within humanity. But I think we can also use scientific language. We can, but, but, but here's, see, here's the thing. So when I sit back and I look at it, um, if I, If I wanted to say what probably is the most reliable path where i 'm at in this moment, I would have to say probably shamanic traditions are the most reliable path because shamanism uh, shamanic traditions are the oldest uh, religion, the oldest practiced spirituality known to man, and the consistency down through the ages and the consistency uh, if you meet with a shaman in Peru or a uh, shaman in Tibet or a shaman in South America or a shaman in China or Japan, their methodologies, their language, their symbols are going to be consistent. So there's a lot of consistency for me uh, from my studies and my investigations within shamanism. And shamanism works with the symbols uh, the The symbols that communicate to us the energies and the various different uh, unseen consciousnesses that are out there and give us gives us the power and the ability to connect with those things and so here 's what I would say: I would say that god that Jesus did not corner the market on God, that as much as Constantine and the Christians tried to say the only way to God is through this person Jesus, and this person Jesus has eternally been the Son. Of the father. And so, therefore, to know the father, you have to know the son. Uh, I think that was Roman uh, stuff to try and say we've cornered the market on God. And if you want to know God, you've got to come through the Roman God. I mean, in, in reality, if, if we want to be honest about it, uh, the Nicene Creed fashions out the new Roman. God and the new Rome, the new God for Rome, which is why you have the Roman Catholic Church, and because of the Empire, then you have the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox and you know all this stuff, but the reality is is that you have and I, and this is what I think Paul is getting at uh, the Pauline revelation of Christ that it's Christ in you, it's divinity in you. I think this is what the author of John is all about. I think the author of John is not talking about a historical person. I think the author of John is talking about the Christ, the Savior. It means Messiah, the Savior within us. I I think the Gnostics were saying, look, salvation isn't going to be found outside of us. Salvation isn't going to be found in a god out there. Salvation isn't going to be found in a political leader. Salvation isn't going to be found in a religious leader. It's not going to be found in a guru. It's not going to be found in a teaching it's not going to be found in following one specific path because it's so much better or greater than another path. It's not going to be found in a book that the savior, the messiah is in you. The divine is in you. The divine light, the divine spark is in you. And you're, you're more than this flesh. You're more than this flesh and body and bones and, and this life. And there's more to reality than this physical realm that is here. And that you can have this, what what we call Christ consciousness, this expanded, uh, inclusive consciousness that rises above those things, that allows you to connect with a higher self. And when I say higher self, there's a you. This is what I believe, because I do believe that we are an expression of the divine, however you choose to define the divine. It doesn't matter to me, but we are an expression of divinity. We are an expression of the creator, and we live, we, you know, for whatever reason, and I don't know the reasons, and I don't pretend to, we are living in these bodies and having these, you know, physical human experiences. Uh Some people would say that God is experiencing, growing, and evolving. That makes some sense to me. Um So we're having these experiences in these bodies, but I don't believe I originated August 30th, 1971 or nine months before that in the womb. I I don't believe that. Um, I don't believe the end of my life will be when this body dies. I think we're all like eternal consciousness. We're all part of this eternal consciousness. And I know for a fact through my own experiences. Now, I'm not trying to sell you my experiences. You have your own experiences. I'm not trying to convert anybody to anything, but I'm just saying the reason I cannot be an atheist. One of the things my friend Derek Day always says on, um, <clears throat> uh, Freology Friday, and we've talked about this a lot, you know, off of, off, uh, air, I guess as you might say as well. Uh, he says, you know, until you've flirted with athe- athe- atheism, you haven't gone far enough within, uh, within uh deconstruction um i agree to a point in the sense that i think you know in in my deconstructing every doctrine every teaching that i believed about god about me about jesus i have questioned most of which hasn't stood the test of the questioning but i cannot deny divinity because of my own experiences And to deny divinity would be to deny my own self. To betray faith in God would be to betray myself. And that's a step I'm not willing to take. That's a bridge too far for me because for me, the worst kind of betrayal is self-betrayal. And so for me, from my experiences, there is something greater out there. There is power that is manifested. There is consciousness. There is, I saw somebody put a comment about clairvoyance and clairaudience and there, there are what we would call supernatural things. There is a divine spark. There is a divine potential within us. I don't believe it comes from outside of us. I believe it comes from within us. And I believe every solid spiritual path awakens us to that. And that for every person, there may be something that is different for you that you'll experience. Uh, your symbology, the way you express it, the way you experience it may be completely different for you than the way that it is for me. The language that you use may be very different from the semantics that I might choose to use. But I do think for humanity to go forward, we have to begin to open up to these realms and experience these realms. So hopefully going forward, I'm, not, I'm gonna end it for today. I'm gonna look at some of the comments and then I'm gonna end it for today. Uh thank you guys for joining me. Um, I plan on being back on a consistent basis. I want to do some teaching on spirituality. I want to find a new language to talk about some of these things. I want to look at some of the stuff that Joe Dispenza is doing and and uh my guy uh Greg Braden's put out there and uh, others as well to find a uh, maybe a unifying language where we can talk about these things without all the religious baggage. Uh, so that's kind of my goal. That's kind of the trajectory that I want to be on going forward. Um, so, Hey, thanks everybody. Bless you. Love you. Uh, so love being back and doing this. Um, and so plan on, uh, really going forward. Namaste, the divine in me recognizes the divine in you and honors it. Have a great day.